This is episode 61 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for joining me. The story we often hear and tell ourselves about entrepreneurs is that successful entrepreneurs somehow had it in their blood or it was always what they wanted to be. The problem, of course, is that a lot of people who are now entrepreneurs never thought they'd be one or even have a hard time owning the title now. Graham Cochran joins me today to talk about his journey from freelancer to a successful entrepreneur in the music industry. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hey, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to introduce you to Graham Cochran. Graham is a freelance recording and mix engineer living in Tampa, Florida, and founder of one of the world's most loved audio recording and mixing blogs, The Recording Revolution, with over 200,000 readers each month. As a lifelong singer, songwriter, and musician, his passion for recording and mixing has grown from the bedroom studio to university, where he studied audio production, to multi-million dollar studios, to Fortune 500 software companies, and all the while freelancing for artists and bands worldwide. Graham's work and business have been featured on Yahoo, Business Insider, and Creative Live, to name a few. Graham thinks of himself as a musician and an artist, and never thought that he'd be in the position where he's now a successful entrepreneur that other people are turning to. It's going to be an interesting journey. Listen in to see how it tracks yours as well. Graham, thanks so much for joining me today and for all the great work that you do. Yeah, I appreciate it, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. All righty. So I love, love, love origin stories, how you got started, that that point in time. And I know, you know, I've read it, but share with your, share with um, our listeners here, how you, how you got started on this journey that you're on. You know, I, I was kind of forced into it because I lost a job during the height of the recession. And uh, so I, I had a lot of time on my hands and I was always free. I was a freelance recording and mix engineer. So that was always my extra income. And I kind of liked it staying like that, had a day job and then I could make some money doing what I like on the side. But when like Oh nine hit and man, we moved to a new state. We bought a house for the first time. We had our first baby. And then this company I had started working for as a startup, it just, it fell apart. So it was a really awful time to lose your job. A lot of uncertainty and uh, it was in that time that the recording revolution started. I, I was, oh, I'm always recording and mixing bands, and I kind of started this little blog on my freelance site to talk about the things I was doing in the studio. Um, and also, I have a lot of friends that are musicians, mm-hmm. and they all ask the same questions. Graham, what kind of microphone do you need to buy? What kind of you know, gear do I need? I don't know how to use the software. I just want to make my stuff sound good. Um, and I was always answering the same questions and helping them out as a friend. I thought maybe the blog could be a place for some of that so that they could just read it. Or if there's other people that, you know, have the same questions, they could get those answered. So I had kind of started that and then lost my job. And so in that panic mode of, okay, well, I try to ramp up as much freelance work as possible. Um, I felt like, you know, what if I, what if I could do something with this blog? You know, I don't know. At the time, there was only a handful of people reading it. Um, I didn't know anything about blogging or websites or being a content creator or being an entrepreneur. Even though I had freelance work, I never felt like an entrepreneur because there was no real risk. It was like, spend my time doing it, 
if I get paid, cool. If I don't, I would have done it anyway. And I still have the bills paid. There wasn't any skin in the game. So that was the genesis, the, the, at least the, the brewing ground for the recording revolution to begin. I felt like maybe there's, there, I know there's these people out there that have these blogs. I kept hearing about people making a living blogging and it made no sense to me. This was like six years ago. And I was like, what are they, where's the money come from? Like, you know, um, and so that was kind of intriguing to me. I was like, well, maybe I could figure out a way to do that. And at the time, it was real simple. I needed to put food on the table for my wife and my new baby and pay the mortgage. And, uh, and so I just started creating content. Yeah. And you actually read Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week and took it back a week later because you're like, ah, it doesn't fit me, right? Yeah. Even before, yeah, like two or three years before losing my job. So I was in corporate America. I was working for a software company doing audio for them, but it was, it was a day job. It was cool. and. Uh, but I, you know, I was bored and I wanted the book, you know, the book draws you in. You're like, Oh my gosh, I want to escape nine to five. I want to live anywhere. And I definitely want to join the new rich, whoever these people are. And the guy <laughs> in the cover sitting in a hammock. And that just sounded great to me. So I went to Barnes and Noble on my lunch break, bought it, came home, read it. And I was like, this is all a fantasy. Like this, this is so far from my reality. And, I'm sh and I, I believe that some people are doing this, but I just felt like there's no way I could do this. So I just said, this is only going to make me frustrated or discontent or uh, I don't know. So I just returned the book and I thought it was a joke, um, which is ironic because I've since rebought the book and I read it annually now and review it annually because it's actually a very, very helpful book. Yeah. Um, Tim got a lot of great things started with that one, right? Um, yes. yes, he did. You know, I want to tap into a mindset piece because, um, you know, in your, in your work, you said that you never, as a musician, you never thought you would make any money. I mean, not very many do, right? It's, um, it's like, I always felt I'm good at music, uh, but I don't see how you can make a good living doing music unless you really are propelled to stardom and then, you know, you get a huge advance from the label and, and you can sort of live off of that. And if you do really, really well, the royalties could be nice. And there's a select few that make a great living doing music. And then there are a lot more unknown people that make a good enough living doing music, but it's very hard. They have to tour all the time. And I knew early on that I was going to be a family man because I met my wife when I was young in college and we got married right out of college. And so she was very supportive of my music, but the idea of moving around and touring and all that kind of stuff, um, I knew that wasn't really going to be a lifestyle I could support. So that, that ruled out the hardworking, never make it big music road, uh, which I would have been happy with because um, I just, I, I didn't feel like I had any skill sets beyond that. And all my friends were going to, you know, med school and law school and, and they were going to get good jobs and have a shot. So I just felt always conflicted because I, I felt like I was built and designed by God to make music and do creative things. I was always, always into acting as well. And, uh, and anything, I love movies, I love theater and I love music, but I knew that was my world, what I'm good at and what I love, but I, I know I need to make a living and I wanted to always work hard and take care of my family. I didn't want to just loaf around and just live my dream. So I felt conflicted because I'm somewhat responsible and yet I have this passion. I was like, maybe I just won't be able to do what I meant to do. Uh, and that's why, that's why I went and got random other jobs and, um, but I didn't think it was in the cards for me. Did you, did that mindset piece come up as you were starting this transition for the recording revolution? Like this idea that you, Graham could be one of those people who make good money doing something that they love. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, it's easy to see other people doing things and assume that there's something unique or special about them. And in some cases, it's true. I mean, you look at some of this, like the Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, these guys are crazy. Like if you read their bios, like they're crazy people and, and they're unique to push a lot of culture forward for better or for worse. But the most of the other people that are doing really, really great work, um, it's taken me experiencing it for myself and then meeting some of these people and then doing a lot more reading. You start to realize they're very, very normal people. Um, they just are either relentless in their pursuit of something uh, or they're not too afraid to just let it all fall apart. They know that it could all fall apart. They don't actually think it will always work. They're not that confident sometimes, but they're willing to see what happens. Um, and and, and they, uh, they usually aren't motivated by money. That's the interesting thing. They're not actually motivated by money because if you are, you would go get a good job, you know, um, because it's a little more certain, even though the economy is kind of crazy these days, it's still more certain than starting a business um, so, or being a creative and starting a business. Those are two <laughs> a horrible combination, it seems. But, uh, but yeah, like that, that was something I learned is like, man, it's not just for those people. Um, and, but you don't know that at the beginning because you think you're a nobody. There's something that uh, Ramit Sethi calls an uh, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And you feel like an imposter. What, who, are pe- who am I to teach people how to do this? Like in my niche, recording and mixing. Like I know how to record and mix, but I never viewed myself as at a position where I could then teach others. I felt like I was like everybody else. I, I'm still, le- still learning today. So it was very hard at the beginning for me to feel confident enough to say, yeah, I can teach you how to do this. I'm the teacher, you're the student, and make that divide. So a lot of imposter syndrome, who am I to do this? Um, I just had a lot of free time on my hands because I'd lost the job. And I knew that I was helping my friends. It was almost like I had a test, you know, group mm-hmm. with my friends. Yeah. They're real people. They, they're talented. But I had something that they didn't have, which was a little bit more background in recording and mixing. And I talked to them like another musician. So I knew I was approachable. And it helped them. And then they were, and made records. And they were really happy. And so in essence, that's all I'm doing today is just putting it out there for more of those people. And that's, I have my friends in mind as I create a piece of content every single time because that's who I'm positioned for is people like them. And if you're not like them, then you probably don't like my site. But that helped too is I'm like, I, I can help my friends. Why not other people? Exactly. And I want to pull this out because this comes up for a lot of creative giants when they're thinking about especially the entrepreneurial pathway. Typically, you have some job where people are paying you for an expertise or that, you know, people are already paying you for that skill set. And somehow or the other, we have this mental block that we don't think other people will pay us for that same skill set, right? It's like, oh yeah, like that company will, but other people won't. won't. And there's like no real basis for that whatsoever, you know? But it's one of those things that come up is like um, coaches who are like, I don't know if I could be a professional speaker. It's like people pay you every day to be a professional speaker, right? Um, So just think about the ways that you're already being paid to do some some specific skill, all you have to do is change the packaging so that somebody else pays you to do it. And that's a hard process. I mean, I make it sound simple. It's not Mm -hmm. simple at all, Um, but it's not super complex, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes having a vision that most of us don't have at the beginning. Like, like you said, you can't imagine other people paying you to do something, you know? So if I'm, if I'm a, a graphic designer, and I'm designing websites for a few clients, that seems like a transaction that makes sense. I build a website, they pay me for it. Um, but let's say you want to, to reach more people. If you want to make more money, you typically have to reach more people. 
it's usually a numbers game. Um, the, uh, in that, the book, I don't know if you've read the book, the go giver mm -hmm. by Bob Berg, fantastic book. Everybody listening should read it. It's, you can read it in one evening. It's short. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of those chapters is called the law of compensation. And I love that line that your, your income is directly tied to the number of people or lives that you touch. So want more income, touch more lives. So if I'm a graphic designer, I can only hit, you know, make one website a month or one every two weeks for a client. There's a limit to how many lives I'm touching. So there's a limit to my income. I could increase my rates and I should over time, but even that still has a range. Um, so if I could somehow either make websites for more people by either like hiring people and like having a network or teaching people how to make websites, then in essence, I'm using the same skill, but getting paid for it in a different way. And now I can have a million people buy a course from me on how to build a website. And so I'm able to touch more lives. That's where the income piece comes in. And, and that's really hard to even have a, I had no concept for that uh, at the beginning. So I definitely don't want people to think that that's natural. You have to learn it. That's like, you're good at the creative side and the skill, but then now you have to learn about marketing and positioning and the marketplace. And when we say they wouldn't pay me for that, we're not a good judge of that. We, we actually are not a position to do that. Just like some people would say, who's ever going to buy a Mercedes? That's an expensive car. Plenty of people will buy a Mercedes. Not everybody. And you might not because you might not be able to afford it. That doesn't mean someone can't charge what they charge for a Mercedes. And, it's, and so it's, that happens in a lot of genres. I mean, there's a guy that sells an ebook on how to train your parrot how to talk. And he, it's like an $80 ebook. And he makes, I think, over a million dollars a year selling an ebook on how to train your parrot to talk. I don't have a parrot. I don't care about parrots. I, don't, I wouldn't pay someone to teach me how to make them talk. But I guess people have parrots. And the one thing they want their parrot to do is learn how to talk. And anyway, it, it's crazy. We're not a good judge of what will sell. So sometimes we have to try, and I think, you know, maybe trying with free stuff, you know, that's, in essence, that's what my blog started out as is, I don't even know if anyone will read it for free. Mm -hmm. So I'm just creating content and there's literally no risk other than the time I spent creating it. And you can learn very quickly if people are resonating with it, if you're good at teaching it or good at whatever it is you're offering. And uh, you learn quickly if there is a market for something and you try stuff and see what sticks. Yeah, what's particularly challenging is the thing that we're best at, we undervalue the most. Yeah. Uh, because it's so native to it. It's just like, oh, everybody thinks that. Everybody knows how to do that. Like, when I wouldn't pay myself to do that. Exactly. Well, no shit, you wouldn't pay yourself to do it. Yeah. You're, you're good at it, right? Yeah. Um, you have to always remember that take that thing that you're good at and imagine that it's completely foreign to somebody else. So I always pick on like, you know, bookkeeping or something like that. That's really, you know, something that most people don't care about, don't know about, Right your thing is like that to somebody else and you know you need it so on and so forth, right? And so you have to make that switch and that's why you're a terrible gauge of the value of your own work is because it's just so damn close to you, you know? Absolutely. It's hard to know the value of what you have. And, and some things, they aren't even valuable because other people can't do them. It's valuable because they don't want to do them. Absolutely. I pay someone to cut my grass. I can cut my grass and I did for years until a couple of years ago I live in Florida and it's so hot in the summer. I was just so sick and tired of sweating and it, taking up time. And I'm like, I struggled at the beginning of like, I don't want to pay someone to do something that I can already do. But now I realize, and, and thousands, millions of other people in the state do too, is like, there's businesses. You could, I could start a business today cutting grass. And it's something that someone can already do. It's not a skill that they can't do. It's just they don't want to do it themselves. So there's a lot of things that people will pay for and sometimes as a creative entrepreneur at the beginning, we have to step back and say, I'm not a good judge of what people will pay for. So I need to find out.
You need to find out. So, um, and you mentioned blogging is a great way. I, I agree with that, right? Blogging is a great way because especially if you're talking about something you love, um, it's not like you're doing work that you hate to get paid to do something else that you hate. It's like you're doing something that you already sort of enjoy. It's already that you're passionate about. So there's some joy in the process, um, not just the outcome. So there's there. But I know that a lot of people make that switch from, it's hard for a lot of people to make that switch from free content to paid content, right? Mm -hmm. To premium content. What was that process like for you? Yeah, I mean, so it started in two realms. One is a freelancer. So like going from recording bands for free and mixing bands for free, it's actually doing the craft and then starting to charge bands. So I call that the freelance arc. And like you, you have to start for free because um, A, you're, you would do it for free anyway. You're experimenting and, uh, and you're also building a portfolio of work. So this is the same for anybody that freelances in any realm. Um, so you build that portfolio and also you get to work with people, you're unproven. So it's a great place to start. But the problem is most people stay there, right? They do work for free for too long and it's just fear. And mm -hmm. it makes total sense because we, again, the imposter syndrome, who am I to charge? And if I charge, they expect something more. And, uh, and there's a lot of people that have done some great writing on this. Michael Hyatt has a fantastic few pieces on like why, why you should charge. Um, and there's, he has like four or five points. And like one of them is, um, you know, you respect yourself more when you charge. And, and so it actually is like a force a hack to force you to do better work because you almost have to be like, well, uh, they're paying me, so I better deliver. And that's good. It puts the onus on you to deliver, which will just squeeze a little bit more work out of you. And also, um, I, I tell people, because I try to teach people how to also freelance and record and mix and, and stuff like that, is the moment you start charging, you start to separate the type of clients that will work with you. People that just want to work for, with you for free are the worst kind of people, generally speaking, unless they're your friends and you just worked out a deal. But they demand the most and they pay the least or they don't pay at all. Uh, so you have to charge something to say, Hey, look, I'm taking this seriously. And then you have to probably charge more than you think you should charge. That's the other thing. Some people say, Oh yeah, I've been charging for a long time, but they're not charging enough. And they're again, afraid if I charge too much, will I either price myself out? So no one will pay for it, which is a fear that's not qualified because it's not true. You just think that there's nobody out there that'll pay for it. And two, the moment you charge more for your work, you get better clients that take it seriously as well because there's more skin in the game for them. And they're, they're, they listen to you better. They'll pay deposits. They'll, if you need revisions or if they communication's better, it just makes the whole thing a little more serious. And people, people do their best work and people bring their best game. So like I work with musicians. So if I charge more, I usually get more talented musicians that are more passionate about their music. And it actually helps me build a better portfolio because that, you know, it's all a beautiful cycle. So I usually tell people the arc is like doing it for free, starting to charge, raising your rates. And then you're eventually one day you're in that sweet spot where you're making optimal income for uh, the work you do with the ideal client of yours. So it's like a four-step process, but most people need to jump from free to paid quickly and paid to pay more quicker than they think. So you mentioned that on the freelance side. Um, let's go back to the content side. Yeah. Do you think that same arc is there or um, go yeah, ahead? Yeah, well, absolutely. So like some bloggers are blogging forever and they might even have a massive audience, but they're not making any money. Um, and there's a, few, there's a few ways to make money as a content creator. Obviously, you could have, have advertising. You're valuable, but you have to 
other people have to know that you have an audience. So you have to be strategic about either letting them know if they don't find you organically or finding partners that you think would be a good fit for your audience and saying, look, this is the kind of email list I have, the kind of eyeballs on my site every month. I like your products. I think they match. So you have to be a little more proactive. Or like me, I, I didn't really know that you could do advertising. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. It makes total sense. Like just television is a great platform that's been doing that for years. But I, I thought I had to create something to sell. And, and in essence, I'm glad I did because I think I can make more impact, more money, and have more control by having uh, information courses that I sell on how to record and mix because that's my niche. So a lot of bloggers can blog for a while, but I say if you are able to build an email list, which you sh everybody should be doing from day one, that's the biggest mistake a lot of bloggers or content creators make is they've got millions of followers but no email list. They've got YouTube views and Twitter followers and Facebook, but those platforms could go away tomorrow and then you've got nobody. So email is the one thing you own. You've got their email address and it's the best way to connect with them. So I, I build, build the email address, but early on, think about what's that first piece of content that's going to be paid or exclusive that you can offer. And uh, you could charge little for it if you want to. There's two very different philosophies on how to do that and both are valid. I lean more to the premium pricing early on um, as opposed to like a, a cheap product to get you. I have lots of free stuff. And then if you want to pay, it's more of a premium for my niche. Um, and they're very separated. Uh, and that's good. So I have a you know, small percentage of people that pay for it. But I tell people to start create something. Be thinking of what you could create as valuable that you could charge for. Because the moment you get that first sell, sale, you realize that what you have is not just valuable in the sense that you have a lot of engagement and a big audience. That feels great. But when someone puts money down for it, that means they really like it. You can have a lot of people saying, I love your content, Graham, but until they, they swipe a credit card or their debit card, you don't really know if they really like it. And uh, that's a different ballgame. That'll give you confidence, and then you can build out premium stuff down the road, but create something to charge a minimal viable product of some kind relatively early on once you know who your audience is and you've got some rapport with them. So in the first year of getting um, the recording revolution started, what were some of the major lessons that you learned? I mean, I, I, the very first year, a lot happened. I mean, I started uh, an email list as soon as I could. So I was working hard to create like a free ebook that I thought would be super valuable. And I tried to make it like really, really good. Because why else would anybody want to give me their email address? I, I don't want to give my email address away unless I'm getting something valuable. So I, I for some reason, I'm glad I knew that because I knew nothing about internet marketing or content creation. But I, for some reason, I knew that that would be smart. And I'm really grateful. So I worked hard on... That was a milestone for me is creating that and putting it up and saying, hey, download it. It's free. And I started to grow an email list. And as that was just cool to see that grow. I'm like, wow, I, I created something that people want and they're at least giving me the, their email address for it. Um, then I knew I wanted to create a course that was going to take like three or four hours of video. And originally I was going to just do it all on YouTube. I didn't even think about paid courses. But at the time, YouTube would only allow me to make 15-minute videos. And I was like, this is going to be a bajillion YouTube videos to teach this thing. I just like, I just want to like film it and be able to give it to them so they can just watch it in one sitting. And, uh, and at the time, YouTube quality wasn't that great either. So it's like, they could just download the zip file with all the videos. It would look better anyway. Um, and so I was like, well, why don't I just shoot it all, make it this three hour, four hour thing that I have to teach it and then just sell it. I could put a PayPal link and just see what happens. That was an experiment for me. I think maybe it was like $45. I don't remember. It was probably around there. And it was this course on a, a popular piece of software we use in the recording world. And 
how to teach it, how to, how to use it. And so I remember being at my grandfather's uh, place in Seattle. It was his funeral, actually. I'm with my grandmother, flew out there. He had passed away. And I, I had like a couple hours the day before the funeral. And I went down to the, the lobby of their, their condo, got on the Wi-Fi just to check email. And there was that email from PayPal saying, you've got a payment. It's 45 bucks. And someone got the download and I had money instantly in my account. And that was the beginning of, this could be a business. And I'm not very business minded, but I was like, I just sold something that to me, like you said a moment ago, Charlie, is a no brainer. I know how to use the software. It's not that big of a deal to me, but other people don't know how to use it very well, or they've tried learning it from a book or another course and the person didn't explain it very well. And they bought it. I made money and it cost me nothing to stock or stores all digital. And that was, that was like April of 2010, I think. And that, I remember that, that I still have that screen grab. That's like my first dollar. I made mm-hmm. yeah, no. And that, that was the beginning. In essence, that's my whole business model is, is uh, create the most valuable free content I possibly can. I try not to even hold back. If I'm afraid it's going to be too good, I know I should give it away. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I want to be the, the resource that people are like, this guy gives the best stuff away for free. That's how I've grown a massive audience and created loyalty and trust with my readers um, and tested out content too to see what works. So I'm creating the best free content, pushing them to join the mailing list where I send them even more free content that's nowhere else, treat them well, and then build really valuable information courses that just give them everything they want in one place and in a beautiful way, and, uh, and they pay for it. And not everybody does, but that's how I make a living. And it's the same thing I did six, almost six years ago when that first PayPal thing came in, was had blog posts, mailing list, and a, a PayPal button. And uh, that's, that's how you can do it even today. So let's talk about spark moments. I imagine that first, you, you've got $45 was a spark moment for you. It was like, man, I'm on the right track. I'm doing the right thing. Um, what were some other spark moments, you know, earlier on in the, um, in the start of, of um, the recording revolution? Yeah, one was the following year, um, I, t- I experimented with, content in terms of how often I create content. I, 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 not something that I could do long term, but I thought, wouldn't it be crazy if I posted a video every single day for a month? So for me, I posted one video a week, wrote two articles a week. And that was, that's a lot of content for me. That's and, a lot of content, man. So that was, you know, every other day, basically something new is going up. And um, it's not like news um, or, or reviews. It's all like teachable content. So that, that's what I decided to do. So one day I was like, wouldn't it be crazy if I could make a video for every day of the month and like theme it as something and just make it this big deal? Like, A, could I do it? And at B, I wonder what it would do for traffic. I had no idea. So that was one thing I did in like the May, May of 2011. So my second full year, I shot a bunch of videos. I got people pumped and they were going up one every day. And it created um, a little burst of momentum as people were like, there's a guy that's doing this thing every day this month. It was like a thing. You know, obviously I always create content, but they realized it was a thing. So it became shareable, I think. And people were like, oh my gosh, he's got this thing called whatever. And it's happening every day this month. Check it out. It's going to be 31 videos. It's going to be crazy. And I saw my web traffic double that month, end over end double. It took me like a year to get a certain level. And then it doubled that month just because of this, thing I created and I couldn't sustain that. And I stopped it. And it was just for that month, but that was a big boost for me. And that creates more email signups, more people know about me, which more people share. And you start to see like the following year, my third year that, and I did that again. 
and I saw another doubling of, of traffic. And that was the year where I started the ex- exponential curve started to appear of like, this is picking up really fast for the same amount of work. Um, it was two hard years of like, you know, steady growth, nothing to write home about, making some money, but still, I mean, I was on food stamps for 18 months during that period. I wasn't, I wasn't making enough to support my family. It was pretty low for my pride, but I could see steady growth. The year three was when it just, things changed then. I'm glad you mentioned that, um, that pre-growth plateau, or not that plateau, that, that period before it really starts working, right? There, it's it's kind of working. You can see progress, but it's not the hockey stick. You know what I mean? Right. Um, because we don't talk enough about that. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that area and give up before the hockey stick. Um, when you're talking to people, what do you encourage them um, to do or to think about when they're in that pre hockey stick, um, area. Yeah. I, that's where most people fail. They even do it for like a year. Like I blogged for a year and nothing happened. Like, what do you expect to happen in a year? I don't know where you're getting your information from and nothing, rarely nothing good happens in a year. It, um, so now I, if I knew some more things going back in time, I probably could have sped it up a little bit. I was still learning. So you can do a little bit faster, but yeah, the biggest thing is that people quit too early. Um, because they're not seeing the results they want. So you have to be in it to win it, um, to even hope that it will work. But the key for me has always been, and I tell people that want to be content creators is, is, uh, there's a couple things. One positioning, meaning, do you really know who your audience is and who you're creating content for? And I hope that it's not everybody. I hope, I hope you're not saying I create content for everybody in this niche because that's not good. You, your niche is great. So oh, you, you're working with, you know, athletes or your, you know, life coach or your audio. That's way too big of a niche. You know, I think it's, uh, um, Ryan Lee taught, I learned this from him about niching down three levels. He always talks about it. whatever your niche is, go down two or three more levels from that. So if you're a life coach, are you a life coach for men or women? Okay. I'm a life coach for men. Okay, are you life coach for like like single men or married men or men with this specific background? Okay, life coach for men who have a corporate banking background. Like you could get super niche and a couple things happen. One, you become the expert in that niche because it's a crazy small niche and who else is doing that? So if people are that target person, they're going to totally love you because you're exactly who they're looking for. Um, so niching down is helpful, knowing who you're creating content for. And then in every piece of content you create, having that person in mind, so you're not like all over the map. There's a lot of content that I could teach that I choose not to because it does not fit with my audience. And I'm trying to be, I'm very strategic. Every piece of content I make isn't random. It's very strategic for who it's for. And I try to communicate that clearly, even in the, the copy on my website or the way I talk about things so that people can either tune in and love me or tune out because I'm not for them. So that's important. And then the other big thing is uh, consistency. Pick a, a, a rate of which you can create content. So like I said, for me, it was three pieces a week. I, I don't know where I came up with that, but at one day at the very beginning, I said, I'm going to try to create three pieces a week and I can't control much else, but I can control how often I post. So let, let that at least be a pillar of consistency and we'll see what else happens. And that's the most important thing because then people can come to your site and realize, oh yeah, Charlie's continually gotten a podcast up. Something's, he's not just like, creating a bunch of content and then there's three months where I don't see anything posted. They can't trust you if that's the case. They, they want a resource they can trust. And it doesn't have to be every day. It doesn't have to be three pieces a week. It could be once a week. There's a, a massive blog. Um, 
in the personal finance realm called Mr. Money Mustache. And this guy is one of the best bloggers I've ever read. Whether you like personal finance or not, this guy's a fantastic writer. He's, he's good at stories and he has a massive following. But if you look at his posting, he's like maybe twice a month. Every other personal finance blogger, I'm a, I'm a dork when it comes to personal finance. Every other personal finance blogger is like every day or four or five times a week. This guy blogs twice a month maybe, but his posts are long and they are amazingly engaging. They're funny and they're shareable and he's built a massive audience because he's consistently at least two times a month and people have learned that's his pace and that's fine with them. So if you can pick a, a consistent amount of posting and then just you, you can't stop because it will take time to even notice like if you look at a graph and anything like let's even take the stock market because I love this when you see the stock market like drop in a day the Dow goes down 300 points and people freak out if you zoom out in 10 years that crazy day where everyone freaked out is like a blip that you can't even read on the, the, the line of constantly going up. Because of inflation, stock market's going to always go up over time. It always has. But the, the days, even look at like the, a lot of the recessions in like the 70s or 80s, they're like little blips because we've gone so far above that. So we lose perspective and it, it will take forever for you to see some growth. <coughs> Excuse me, but that's why you got to hang in there when you're not seeing that massive hockey stick like you're saying at the beginning. It does take time and it takes time for that critical mass to happen. But in the meantime, you can worry about your consistency, knowing what your positioning is and being really good at what you do. Yeah. I mean, so that's the, I think because we live in such a feedback loop with data, you know, you got your analytics, you've got your social shares, you've got all of that BS that can get in the way of like, my, my stats aren't going up. It's not going up. It's not changing because you see it immediately, right? And it's like, that's not the way it works, man. It's not that first 25 people is the hardest 25 people to get. <laughs> that first yeah. 50 people is the hardest people. And you'll reach these certain bumps, right? When you get to like, there's a 500 sort of subscriber bump, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's hard as hell to get to from no, because you're nobody. No oh, one yeah. knows who you are. Right. But then getting from 500 to a thousand, isn't that hard? Isn't as hard as it was to get to 500 and then to get to 5,000 isn't as hard. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you got to know that that's kind of the way that it goes and, and hang in there. Um, and I agree, man, like consistency trumps frequency every time. Like if they know you're going to get it every Tuesday. They'll just build a pace around every Tuesday. Just don't miss every Tuesday. Right. Yeah. Um, and don't and worry about what everybody quality. else is doing. Yeah. And quality too. Like, the numbers game is hard because we, we, we treat, sort of treat people like numbers, not like people. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh my gosh, I only have 50 people on my mailing list. I want to get to a thousand. I tell people, like, slow down for a second. You're saying you have 50 people that are listening to everything you're saying. So if you put 50 people in your house, 50 people come over to your house and they all sit down and you pour them coffee, you have 50 people in that room that want to listen to you talk about whatever your niche is. That's a huge audience. That's a lot of influence. You know, that if that's if you view them as people in a room, that changes things because then you get excited about them, which really helps you serve them better. And that's what this whole game is about. Are you serving your audience? And so if they're like, oh, I wish I had a hundred people or a thousand people or you know, whatever, you know, any of your guests, I wish I had the type of email list that they have on your podcast. Well, you're neglecting the 50 people that are that are hanging on to your every word so you can focus on them. And if you serve them well, and you actually have a greater opportunity when you have 50 people, you can actually engage with them better. I have way too big of a, a list of people to engage with all of them. So if you have 50 people, you should almost know all their names and email them regularly and ask them questions and get to know them, not just so that you can serve them personally, 
But so you can learn what real people are going through and you'll hear the exact complaints they have about your niche, frustrations, hopes and dreams. That's gold. You write that stuff down. You frame your content around it. You frame your products around it. It's like research mode. And those 50 people will love you forever because you have served them like crazy. They will stay loyal and they will share. So you almost have a cooler opportunity at the beginning. And I miss that. I do miss it too, man. I tell people about that all the time. I was like, you have no idea like what it's like to have those 50 people, right? And what ends up happening is as you go along, you end up recreating those 50 people through special groups. Like you got your champions, you got things. So there's like still a group of people that are way back from way back in the day where I'm still like emailing and talking to them, right? And then there are new people that come and engage. And I'm like, that's, that's really where the love is, man, is with those individual people. Like, oh man, she lives in Florida and this, you know, she's got three kids and this is what she's going on. Or he, you know, he just started this thing. That's where the fun is. That's, that's really, really where the fun is. And I don't know, a lot of people I've talked to and this myself, there's like a sadness when you get to a certain point because you can't do that anymore. Right. It's hard. It's much harder. And it's almost, you almost get uh, away from the core of what made you great. If you, if you've gotten to, if you're lucky to get to that point, because you start to think that you're awesome, you know, you, you sort of uh, believe your own press a little bit too much. And then you start to treat a little bit too much like a business. I'm saying you, but I mean me, this mm-hmm. is what I've yeah. done in the past. And so like, you have to go back to, wait a second, why did people like my content? And if you're starting out, what's going to make them like your content? Hopefully it's helpful content that just helps their lives in any niche. But what's cool about the, the era that we live in now is that in the past where you could go read a book from an author and get the content you wanted, or go take a class from a professor or watch something online or even a video online 10 years ago. Now there's way more interaction and way more interactivity in the sense that you can almost have more of a relationship with the content creator. And that's what we like. We like to know our content creators a little bit more. Um, and so if they, you know, I, if I find a site and I like the person teaching stuff and they, they email me back when I email them, that's amazing. It's like, wow, I just connected with the person that's creating this brand and this content. And uh, so it's a, it's not just conveying information. And for the longest time I missed it for the longest time I viewed my job as I know the answers to this question. Let me teach it to you. You're coming to me for help and I'll give you what you want. It was more transactional and it was helpful enough that people liked it. I've had to since learn that there's much more going on than a transaction. It is also a relationship as best as it can be. It's also an experience, can give people an experience. And branding is so much about that too. What what is it about certain brands? You know, you could buy a computer from anybody, but why do people buy computers from Apple and love it and get weird and geeky about their Apple products? It's it's because of the culture they've created and the brand they've created that they're not just buying a computer, but they're buying into something that makes them feel like they're a part of something, something like an ethos, whatever it is. And everyone listening, you have that opportunity to do that with your niche. You know, look at other people in your niche and what they're doing and what, what do you not like about the way they teach? It's probably built off their personality. You're probably very different. So that's one of the reasons why you don't have to worry about, you know, who am I to start another blog or, or business around X, Y, and Z. It's because you're not like anybody else. So build it around your personality, the way you see the world and be very clear in communicating that. Don't try to be like somebody else because it won't actually be that great. It'll be diluted even if the content's good. So I'm very critical, uh, clear in my positioning is like, I'm the guy that's not going to tell you to upgrade your audio equipment. I, I make fun of people that say you should always upgrade and buy expensive stuff. I'm always talking about how you can do a lot with a little, <coughs> excuse me. So I'm clear about who I'm reaching and it's based off my personality. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the thing about it is, even when you reach a certain scale, you grow <coughs> one by one, one person at a time, one person at a time is how you grow one sale at a time. There's not a, you know, even if you had a hundred sales in an hour, it's still one individual person yeah. saying this product, this brand is something that I believe in that's going to help me. Yep. And I'm investing in it. You do that from the beginning, just the same, right? <laughs> There's nothing fundamental that changes. And so if you embrace it at the beginning and really understand how much of a privilege that is to be in that position, yeah. um, it just sets you up for later success because, you know, like, like Graham mentioned and, you know, I, there's been times I've forgotten it and there've been times some of my clients have forgotten it. Like it's easy to get lost up in the numbers game, but really it's a people game. It's a relationship game. Oh yeah. You, you were saying it great about analytics or our distraction <clears throat> people. You know, I, I understand there's value in, in studying the analytics, but a, at the beginning, there's not much value because there's not enough information to really show you any trends. So what you got 20 people that came over from a certain website. That's a lot of people when you're starting out, but it could be totally random, you know? So I like to look at analytics some at the beginning, but I realize, like you said, otherwise you're just counting the numbers. I think instead you could be more content focused. And the, the information that's most valuable is if you got a single comment or two comments on a blog post, what did they say? Someone took the time to like, okay, they wanted to re respond in some way. Did they say, this is horrible? Or that's information that's helpful. Did they say, this is amazingly helpful or specifically, wow, what you said about X, Y, Z, I never thought about. That's data that's very interesting and very helpful to you because it's, it's real and it's a real person, like you said, Charlie, and it, it helps you focus on creating more and better content, delivering more value. It's all about value. And so the numbers can only show you some of what's going on. And they, I think they can help you, you know, tweak what you're doing, but they can't be what you're doing, Right. You still, it's still a content game. Um, in my, in my niche, it's no different than anybody else's. I can have the best website or the best, uh, marketing strategy or the best autoresponder on planet earth. And it all helps. But if I'm not creating content on my blog and on YouTube, in my case, that really could change somebody's world in my niche and is valuable and is totally me to the core and is shareable that someone's going, dude, this was awesome. And they can't wait to share it with someone else. If I'm not focusing on that, that, and those aren't, that piece isn't there. Nothing else happens. I don't make money. I don't, that's why I spend all my time creating free content that, that, to make a living. When I try to explain to what people do, like, well, how do you sell it? Or how do you get people to buy? It's like, I actually have to focus on just creating the best free content on planet earth. And most of those people, I, my last calculation, at least over 90%, probably 95% of those people have never bought something from me or never will buy something from me. And you, so you have to, you're still creating it for them. Uh, they might tell somebody else about your stuff and that person buys from you. So it's all about creating the best stuff on planet earth that you would be proud of and that you would want to ingest as a content consumer. Yeah, it was interesting. I had a reader survey come through um, last week and one of the comments that was left was, I will never buy content I will never buy information when so much is available for free on the web. Mm. And I found that to be a really interesting comment because she had taken, I, I think it's a she, right? <clears throat> this person had taken the time to fill out a reader survey, had been a part of the autoresponder sequence, had been a part of sort of everything that we have done. And, and, you know, that's really, really valuable feedback. And I'm like, you know what? I'm okay with that. 
I'm really, really okay with that because she's still a part of this relationship. I keep saying she, this reader is still part of this relationship with me and that's valuable feedback. That person might not ever be a customer. Okay. They're still engaging. I appreciate that. No, that's huge. And to be at peace with that is important. I think people need to know most people aren't going to buy from you. That's not your job. You're not, your job isn't to make everybody buy from you. If you have uh, the best free content in your niche and you're, engaging with people and growing an audience that loves what you say or, or offer because it helps them or, it, or it's entertaining and it makes their lives better, whatever it is, if you're able to do that, you will create enough of a group of people that are willing to pay for what you have to offer for premium. You know, it's the same with like, just look at the, the iPhone app games, you know, they know that they'll, they'll spend millions on advertising on national television to get you to download a free game. Why is that? Because it's going to take millions of downloads of people that will never pay for the full game or the upgrades or in-app purchases, but enough people will that they can make their money back and then make a profit. So that kind of gives you some freedom and some like, oh, take the burden off of like, if someone's like, I will never buy your course. No problem. Count them as one of the 90 to 95%. Like the odds are in your favor that that person's going to say, I'm probably not going to buy your stuff. But you know, I have a lot of people that well, they'll tell me that they almost feel bad, which is cool because I've created a culture where they even revere my paid stuff, even if they won't pay me for it. And they'll say, like, dude, I, I, I don't have the money to buy your courses or I don't know if I can convince myself to buy it, but I'm sure it's really valuable and I'm sorry. And they're almost apologetic. They're like, I've watched all your videos though. And it's probably about all I'll ever do. And that means the world to me because I know that I get that buddy. I'm not making it for, for everyone to buy. I know that. I want my free stuff to be so good that you can enjoy it and say, I'll never buy his stuff, but man, his free YouTube videos are the best out there and they changed my world. That's, to me, that's a win. At some, some point in the game, because I know the, the super analytical entrepreneur people, like at some point you have to make a transaction and it's true, but this is a very different economy in this world where it's, for example, it's, you front load it with free, not because you're afraid to charge, uh, because it, it's like advertising. It's, it's how I've, if I started out with a paid course and said, here's what it costs and it's awesome, it might be awesome, but nobody would know about it. The only reason I'm able to sell courses and make a living is because I've given so much content away for free and will continue to do that. Um, that the Recording Revolution as a brand went from nobody knowing it to a lot of people knowing about it, at least in my niche, and I'm a nobody. In the eyes of like the traditional uh, economies of scale. I, I'm not the person to come in and say, okay, well, I mixed Taylor Swift and I have this Grammy and now I'm going to share all my secrets. There are a few of those guys in my niche and that helps them. I don't have that. So what do I have to do? I have to actually help people and prove that I can help people. So if I can prove that I can help you with free stuff, I've, that's free advertising because A, I'm growing my audience, but B, you almost can trust that if his free stuff is this good, I'm sure his paid stuff is amazing. And that's, that's what I do. I make my paid stuff even better, but my free stuff has to be great. So I had to front load it for, like I said, those first two years, the first 18 months, I made practically nothing. And the first two years as a whole were really scary and really painful. You don't know how many like Christmas parties I went to, gatherings I went to, birthday parties, you know, where I'm meeting up with family and they're like, Graham, so what are you doing now? Like, I know you lost the job. You're blogging. About, about <laughs> what again? About audio? And I, like, okay, so, okay, that's cool because they know I'm a musician, but what, they always were afraid to ask the question, but like, how are you going to make money? Like, what are you doing to support your family? And that's a painful question to answer when you don't really know if you will make money off of this. But I was working every day. I'm in my office, nine to five, Monday through Friday. I made it my job to treat it like a job. Um, 
but it's because of all that free content where most of those people will never buy from me that I'm able to sell every single day, all day, uh, today. So it's a very interesting way, but I think it's cool for those listening in because actually you now have an opportunity to sell to people all over the world that you never would before, but it starts with you giving first and, and just trusting that the process works. The process works in time. Right. And that's the thing that they, we all want that certainty of how long does it take? Like how many pieces? And no one knows. There's it's different for everybody. It's different for everybody. No one knows in time it does. Um, and so that's, that's the lack, that's both the grace and the frustrating thing about it is you don't know how long it's going to take, but the grace is that it, you know, um, it works out in the end. Yeah. And that's why you have to really like the content you're creating. So you can't even just adopt the business model and say, okay, that's strategic. I'll make some content. Uh, unless you're a robot, you'll burn out because you won't see the rewards for the, the, the effort early on enough. So that's why it's beautiful if it's built around your passion, your skill set, uh, helping people, um, so something that you've learned that's helped you and you're passing it along as you go because you actually are interested in it enough to be like, well, even if it's helping people for free, this is noble and it's valuable and you're just giving of yourself so that's, that's really a secret sauce to it, to sustain the time it takes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of my friends, Jonathan Fields in his book, career renegade, um, wrote, and I think he, I think it was Gina Trapini that he quoted, but it's like, you do the thing you can't not do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because if you do the thing you can't not do through all those bumps and all those highs and lows, like you still are compelled to do it. And yeah. it gets you through that, up that point, that no man's land when you've started, but you're not, successful by your own definition yet. Right. Um, you got to get through that part. Exactly. Absolutely. And I tell people like, if, if you could just replace your full-time income with this thing, like don't have crazy, crazy, crazy aspirations. Like for me, it was like, can I replace the job I just lost? And I had to do it because I lost the job. Otherwise I probably would have started it in the evenings and weekends and uh, transitioned. But I was like, well, I don't have a job, so I'm going to do this. Um, but man, that's a noble enough goal. If you could make the same money you made at your day job, but now you don't have to leave your house and it's probably way fewer hours of actual work. Um, isn't that an amazing goal? Even if it took you four years to get there, wouldn't that be worth it? Like to, unless you love your job, which is in a great position to be in. It's a win-win. This could be extra money. And for some people it is, but I always think that's just a cool, simple goal. And then if you make more than that, well, then that's just gravy. But to replace what you're making today is, that would be amazing. So what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Unanticipated challenge that I'm personally facing. Well, an anticipated one, I know you didn't ask that, was keeping the content fresh. I I thought I would only be able to write for like two months. And now I'm over six years of of this. So (laughs) I anticipated that being a challenge. Uh, And it is always a challenge. But as you're always learning and, and you're engaging in this niche, there's always... And there's new people asking questions. There's always new fresh things to teach or new perspectives on things. So that's an ongoing challenge that I expected. An unanticipated one, um, you know, I've, as the business grew, things break. You know, like uh, I ran the free or the cheap, excuse me, like $5 economy web hosting with GoDaddy for the first four years uh, until like, they shut me down because I, I was getting way too much bandwidth and comment. I didn't, they didn't give me any warnings. All of a sudden my, my site went dark. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, Oh yeah, you're like, your bandwidth is like 
2000% over what it should be for your shared hosting. I'm like, well, what, what does that mean? Like, well, you're going to have to either stop blogging or buy your you know, own personal server. And I'm like, well, what's that going to cost? And it was like over 10 times, it was like 20 times what I was paying. And I was like, what? That's, that's my only option. I don't want to pay that much for hosting, but that was like an unanticipated you know, growth meant systems would break. You needed to invest in different tools. Um, and I just hate spending money when I don't need to. So I, I fortunately like spend zero dollars unless I absolutely have to. I don't care about things being fancy or anything. So I just go until it breaks. And then usually it's an unanticipated thing like, oh, you know, your site's getting hacked now and all this malware stuff and you got to have better security. I didn't know I needed to secure my website. I didn't know anything. I still to this day don't know anything about what it is I do. I just know the content that I'm teaching. And so you, I, there's a lot of unanticipated challenges that come with running a web-based business you know, all kinds of stuff that I wasn't expecting. So that's been new to me. I don't like that stuff. There's more tools and people to help you though these days than ever to outsource a lot of that and just get tools or web, web things that help you. So that's the part that nobody wants to do and they just want to do their content and make money. But it's, you don't have to worry about that right now. I don't think you have to have all those things in place and you just start creating great content and figure it out as you go because that stuff is so secondary to the content being remarkable. On the personal side, any unanticipated challenges popping up for you? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there's the, the challenge of, you know, as, as the business grew and some things got more noticeable or more public and some people like, oh, you make money now. Because I was never a guy that made money. And, and then sometimes family members and other people are finding out about like sort of they had no idea what the business was doing. Because what can you do teaching people how to record music? You know, like that's the beautiful thing is like my niche, I should not be able to make money in my niche. Uh, it's not business to business. It's not about fitness. It's not about making money. It's about recording and mixing music for a home studio enthusiast. So if I can make money in this niche, you can make money in any niche. And when that became apparent to some people, there were some awkward conversations. Um, even within my niche, you know, I did a piece uh, with business insider, um, and you know, there were some numbers that I revealed because they want, they want to know that stuff. And I wanted to encourage people because I'm not an entrepreneurial prototype person. And so my story is very like, look, if Graham can do it, you can do it because Graham didn't really have all the pieces in place traditionally to make it in, in a business. And as, as that came out of that article came out, some of my, even my readers and stuff, um, some of them didn't like it at all. There was like, a, oh, you make a lot of money off of this. Then, you know, you're doing something shady. Um, or they were, you know, they just were surprised. I've had to deal with interesting conversations about, you know, is it bad for someone to make money helping people? Isn't that what hospitals do? Isn't that what colleges do? Isn't that what our politicians do? And that's okay. That means it's a bad one to go with because that could be not everyone's happy with the politicians, but everything, you know, should we, should we get upset at our grocery store for charging us money that I just need food to eat, you know, like why are you, so everything's a, everything's a, an exchange, but having to be at peace with understanding that I, I am a business. Um, when on the surface people think I'm just giving content away for free because 95% of the content I give, give is free. Some people don't like that you make money off of it. That's been a hard personal one because I, I feel sad when people are angry with me, especially when I'm just giving them free stuff. But then there's also the personal challenge too of like this year in particular, I had so many opportunities to whether it's travel or, or be a part of certain events or do things that were really cool. And I, you know, at the beginning, you have no opportunities. And when one comes up, you say yes, because you've got nothing else going on. Mm -hmm. and every, every time you can meet somebody, it helps. But there's a point now where I'm getting a lot more opportunities than I had before. And I never had to build the skill of saying no. 
and knowing what is actually a good opportunity for me. So I did too much this year. It harmed my family a little bit, made me a little crazy, a little resentful of my time. When I was back in the office, I was always like preparing to go back out of town or cleaning up my mess. And so I was not a lot of rest or healthy rhythms this year. So that's a, a good problem to have, but it's one that I need to address because I can't just do the same old thing. As things grow, I need to adjust my schedule and cut back and 80-20 it, as Tim Ferriss would say, and make sure that I'm doing the things that are the most important and not just the things I think I should be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's hard. It's hard because, as you mentioned, um, and I mentioned this in my book, The Small Business Lifecycle, um, the first, the first stages of your business are all about saying yes, 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 yes to a lot. But as you start to have a more mature business, you have to start saying no, right? So hard. In the final stage, you're saying no <laughs> a lot, right? Um, so you start saying no and it's really awkward. And then it's just like, no, that's not what we do. And it's just a very quick decision at a certain point. Right. Oh, that's, that's great. That's, that's brilliant. And that's, you know, the last two years I've been in that process of learning to say no. I should have been saying no a lot sooner to a lot more things, but it's hard. And I have a people pleasing problem and it, I didn't realize it, but it, it showed up. I was like, oh, I actually care what people think. I'm afraid to say no. So I'm getting better at it. I just said no to a couple of big things last week and it felt great. It's like, yes, I can do this. But it's so true because it all goes back to what is ultimately going to help my people. And if me saying yes to these events, if it distracts me or I'm creating content that's not for them or I'm too busy to good, make good content, then it's not serving them. And then it'll eventually show up in your business. And that's happened to me. Um, and I think I'm, I'm even experiencing some of that now. So I have to get back to the simple same things that someone starting out today has to face, you know? Yeah, that's the funny thing. You can tell when your business is going off track because it's like the further you get away from where you started, the more it gets off track. And it's yeah. like, there's this wicked sense in which at an intuitive level, you know more about what's best for your business earlier on than yeah. sometimes you can know later on. It's just very strange. It's very, very strange. Um, so if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want that to be? Oh man. Great question. Be generous. Give, give stuff away and, and, and give good stuff away. Don't give teaser content or, you know, just, treat people the way you want to be treated in the sense that like, well, I would want to go to a site and get some amazingly helpful stuff for free right now to even learn if this con if you're a content creator, if it's worth it. Um, I would want authenticity and I'd want, um, consistency, all those things. So just be generous and consistent with your content and you're going to have to charge at some point. So don't be afraid to charge. If, if your free stuff is being ingested by people, then therefore it's valuable. Then you can charge for stuff. It's helping their lives. And people will pay, not everyone, someone will pay, but be generous early on and always, and then don't be afraid to start charging for something. And, uh, and the only way to know what to, to sell people is to ask them. So it's a beautiful cycle. If you're generous with content, you'll get an engaged and large audience. The people that are trying to grow a large audience and be strategic about it, and they're, they're like stingy with their content, they ironically do not grow a large audience. To grow a large audience, you have to be very generous. So generous to grow the audience, and interact with that audience and ask them, what do you need? What's your biggest problem or your biggest goal or desire or hope? And then give them that. And, and it's just, that cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. And you, you'll do great. Whatever it is you do, it'll look different than me, but you will do very, very well. Graham, thanks so much for joining me today. Dude, Charlie, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. All righty, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Graham. What are you sitting on right now that you can share generously and get it to the people who need it? Maybe during this season of giving, 
you can give a little bit more and see what happens with that relationship that you form with the, with the recipients of that. Okay. And so until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.